Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as a senior correspondent at Yahoo News. This week, last month, may have been tank month, but this month is shaping up to be F-16 month. And I thought, who better to have on the program than my friend, who is a an active duty U.S. Uh, Air Force pilot, Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Air Force. He's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and a Ph.D. in War Studies, Jahara Frankie Matasek. Uh, he also bears a slight resemblance to Hangman, if you've seen the Top Gun sequel, which is a comparison. I think I planted that seed online and now your wife has just taken it and run with it. And she's very happy with that. And yes, that be, right? she appreciates that, Mike. It does, yeah. <laughs> so, I just wish I had the body like him still. <laughs> all right. You know, well, I mean, you know, dad bod awaits all of us at some point, even those of us who don't become fathers. But I wanted to bring you on because you and I have been friends for, we, we got to know each other at the start of the war. I forget how, but we were introduced and we began chatting about basically every facet and detail of security assistance to military strategy to Ukraine's capability to Russia's lack of capability or dismal performance dashed expectations but now i mean we're in your wheelhouse here i mean we're talking about air power and airframes to be exact and let's start with sort of the the sort of news that's come out of both kiev and washington dc so Ukrainians that I haven't been in touch with in the Ministry of Defense were very, very gung-ho for, as I say, the last month, we must get main battle tanks from NATO nations. Nobody expected them to get Abrams, but they did. And that seems to have been a kind of drug deal between Biden and Schultz to get the Germans to release the Leopard 2s, which they're now doing. Great. Um, That's another huge impasse that has now been resolved for the sake of combined arms warfare and the recapturing of Ukrainian territory, which the Ukrainians are still very intent on doing, including, by the way, Crimea and LDNR occupied areas. You need infantry and then you need the three A's, right? You need armor, artillery and air power. Well, we gave them the armor. Before that, we gave them the artillery in the form of multiple launch rocket systems, high Mars, you know, you name it, and the ammunition to go with it. And now we're talking air power. So Ukrainians say F-16s, F-16s, F-16s. And, you know, if not that, then maybe French Raphaels or Swedish Gripens. But that's basically it. There's one airframe that they're adamant on, on having. And so tell me, Frankie, like, what is the issue here in terms of training up the Ukrainian Air Force, which has performed remarkably well, and certainly to a degree that nobody thought that they'd even still have an air capability, much less, you know, the conventional wisdom held Russian air supremacy will be established within minutes, if not hours of the invasion, February 24th. What can you tell us about what is involved in taking an entire sort of air force from a a post-Soviet country and making them fluent or familiar with a U.S. Uh, fleet of aircraft. Is this is this really is going to be as difficult as a lot of people in the media have been saying? Or is it not so incomprehensible that a MiG-29 pilot can learn how to fly an F-16 with relative ease? Yeah, so that's a really good opening question. I, of course, have to preface anything I, I say here on out with the, the typical DOD disclaimer. All my views are my own. They don't reflect the official views of the U.S. Air Force, Department of Defense, or U.S. government. So getting that disclaimer out of the way, I, I'm looking forward to talking about this with you. So the issue with trying to give Ukraine F-16s, I, I feel like we're now starting to see the the circular logic from pretty much day one of the war, if not even before the Ukrainian war, which was even before the invasion of 2022, you had all these countries between 2014 and 2022 saying, 
well, if we give this to the Ukrainians, it's going to provoke Russia, right? So we play through that logic of that game. Some countries like the Canadians only did non-lethal aid and training with the Ukrainians. And now you have, you know, a few people all sniping at the Canadians about like, you could have done more, you know, than just teaching them how to take care of themselves when they get shot. You should have taught them how to do things so they don't get shot, right? Yeah. And then you have obviously the Brits and the Americans. We were trying down that line of like, we'll give them some unit training, some tactics, some area defense weapon systems like stingers and laws and javelins, right? And then you see the war kick off. And then for the first two, three weeks, we don't know how it's going to swing. And then I'd say by about, I don't, know if, I don't know if you got a chance to get into this mic, but it looked like around March 11th, March 12th, that's when I think we, at least the international community is like, oh crap, Ukraine's going to hold out and actually at least give Russia the fight we didn't think they were going to get. Yep. So then you start seeing the slow movement of like, okay, maybe we can start giving the Ukrainians ammo, small arms, more javelins, you know, basically RPG, you know, basically throw all that at them, right? Right. And I think it's sort of one of those stop gap of like, maybe it'll stop the bleeding, right? Maybe, you know, they'll be able to make some pushes, get some gains back, right? And then we start hearing talk of like, well, the Ukrainians need American artillery, right? right. They need high Mars. And initial reactions are like, no, 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 it's too complicated, right? Let's keep giving them all the old Soviet thing, you know, all the old Soviet weapons that a lot of our um, NATO allies still have, but they want to get rid of anyways, right? So we go through that whole logic and all that whole game. And at some point we go, oh, yeah, the Ukrainians really do need this, right? So then we finally give them, you know, M777 artillery, high Mars, right? And of course, this whole time, but hey, we're, they're definitely not getting American Abrams tanks, right? right? Any tanks Ukrainians get have to be one of the old T-72 variants that the, the Polish-Romanians the other Eastern European countries get. And of course, this whole time, as we're saying, oh, if we give them, you know, American NATO advanced weapons, oh, the training, the logistics and the maintenance, right? And I happen to, you know, be cognizant of these types of meetings that were going on with regards to the Ukrainian Air Force starting to probe the US and NATO about F-16s and other sort of NATO air power options available in August, September of this past year. And this is where it gets really nuanced and difficult because, and, and I think this is the mindset change that I think we're probably encountering in Western capitals right now with regards to this war, which is the Ukrainians need these weapon systems sooner rather than later. We continue with this bias of thinking they can't do the training, the logistics and the maintenance, or they won't be able to operate them for more than a couple of weeks before they, they break and fall apart. And we want to give them stuff that gives them a fighting chance, but we're also thinking about escalation and red lines with Moscow. So when we started thinking about like, do we give the Ukrainians F-16s, you have to start, you start playing like this, like this balancing act game of like, well, if we give the Ukrainians a bunch of F-16s, like, do we have to change our mentality to like World War II that they may only work or be used for a week or two and then they'll have to get more F-16s? And I think that kind of creeps into the logic of this, of not realizing that this is not a, I guess you could say, a peer, a, a near peer fight in the sense of like, oh, we use our standoff weapons, but we can keep on using our weapon systems. And I think this is why we are, again, struggling with the idea of giving F-16s to Ukraine, because it was pretty clear yesterday that we all saw the clip. President Biden got asked F-16s for Ukraine. He said no. But then that, again, of course, opens the door. Like a, to... a week before the Abrams announcement, every White House official was saying, no, 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 no. We can't provide these tanks because they're they run on jet fuel. The logistics are a nightmare. They don't need them, blah, blah, blah. And then lo and behold, they're getting Abrams. So I, look, Ukrainians are 
perhaps naively optimistic and confident that they will get F-16s. It's a question of when. And I spoke to somebody today in the Ministry of Defense, and I put it directly to them. You saw what the president said. He was pigeonholed right outside the White House, I think. And the response was, yeah, but you know, he was caught off guard. And we kind of were expecting to hear no before we hear yes. And we've also been given reassurances that this negotiation or this kind of process is still very much in play. So I'm inclined to think Biden did not foreclose on the possibility just by saying no in that. that I mean, he could have said not only no, but we won't let the Dutch, the Polish or the Romanians provide F-16s or any other country that has F-16s. I mean, we're also forgetting the fact that it's weird that we compartmentalize our thinking on the Ukrainians for for so long. I think we just do it. we, We do it out of habit of thinking like, oh, you know, we gave F-16s and Abrams tanks to Iraq, right? And you, we see how that turned out and how dependent they were on contractors to keep their F-16s working. And in fact, it's you can look online, you can see that Iraqis, ever since our contractors left, they've been really struggling to fly F-16s. And, you know, you, we obviously saw during the war when ISIS, you know, popped up, they managed to capture a, a few American Abrams tanks. So it's, we can't even use the excuses of like, oh, this technology be compromised because it's already been compromised. You know, there's a top. And also, I mean, I just, I cannot emphasize this enough. All due respect to the Afghan army and the Iraqi security forces, they don't hold a candle to the Ukrainian military. Just if we're talking about very, very recent precedents, right? I mean, they could not withstand a fight like this. And that's just simple fact. If you look at the number of former Warsaw Pact or former Soviet states that have made this migration from Soviet kit uh, and heavy weaponry and equipment to NATO standard stuff. I mean, you just mentioned Romania, Poland, I think the Slovaks have F-16s as well. I mean, this is not unheard of. This is not terra incognita to train up an air force that is used to flying Sukhois and MiGs to fly American-made airframes. It's just a question of how long it takes and what are all the kind of ancillary components that go into it. I mean, look, I want to, there's a lot of I wanna, ground I want to cover with you, but one of the things that has come up, at least among the, the Twitterati, is, you know, if we give them just the planes, and even if we train them on how to fly them, these are planes that are going to get shot down right away, because Russian air defense systems, despite, you know, the joke, what air defense doing, and the fact that they still haven't eliminated Ukraine's native fleet. I mean, you know, they're still flying sorties, fixed wing. Yeah, no, I mean, th- but the, but the point that it's being made is that actually air defense systems on the Russian side are pretty good. And if they start knocking out F-16s, you're going to get more dead pilots, you're going to get more destroyed Western equipment. What do you make of this? I mean, I mean, the fact that they still have Ukrainian MiGs and Sukhovs, and they still have plenty of Ukrainian pilots around to fly these things tells you they've obviously understand the risk. Anytime you're going to fly any mission against an adversary that does have pretty good air defenses, pretty good aircraft, we think works. Again, hence the jokes about like, what's air defense doing at five in the morning when helicopters are are seeking across the border, right, to go attack Belgorod. So I understand sort of like the knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, they're all just going to get shot down in the first week of the war. Yeah, I guess you could think that, but I don't think the Ukrainian Air Force is going to use their F-16s in such a way that they're willing to lose all their aircraft and pilots in the first week or two. That, you know, you're almost taking away the agency of the average, like, Ukrainian pilot or commanding officer of one of those units. That's going to, you know, look at the terrain, look at ingress, egress routes, 
look at where we can operate F-16s from. A lot of this is going to be Ukrainians having to do what they continuously do throughout the war, which is outthink, outsmart the Russians uh, and employ F-16s in a way that the Russians won't anticipate. That's something you have to accept is that the Ukrainian, this is where people like uh, me and others have maybe not given Ukrainians enough credit. And this is something that in an interview I loved was like, you know, we take American and NATO equipment and we fight like the Cossacks do. We're not going to fight the American way. We're not going to fight the NATO way. And I think that's actually one of the best things the Ukrainians have done is they've decided to fight their way. They're not fighting the Russian way, and they're definitely not fighting the American or NATO way. And that's actually to their benefit. I can well appreciate the argument that, all right, so you remember when we provided HIMARS and Gimlers. Exactly. They mustn't use these systems to fire inside Russian Federation territory. Ukrainians have been very disciplined about that. To date, there's been zero evidence that they've used an MLRS platform provided by the US or any other Western nation to strike inside Russia. You mentioned, you know, the operations in Belgorod, they've used Ukrainian military intelligence special forces, have flown helicopter sorties. There has been some evidence of harm anti-radiation batteries, which we provided them on the sly, turning up inside Russia. But the Russians haven't made a peep about that. uh, And the U.S. hasn't said, that's it, no more harms for you. So there seems to be, you know, this sort of gray area of maneuverability. F-16s, though, I can well appreciate an argument that, well, there's a danger What if the Ukrainians get really ballsy and decide, let's start flying missions inside Russian airspace with American-provided airframes? Now, my point of view would be, no way, no how. It's too much of an investment, and they realize it was such an uphill battle to get the damn planes, they wouldn't cross that line in the sand as laid down by the Americans. But you have to consider, worst-case scenario, you have to do- Well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say a person could always go rogue, right? Right. Um, And that's the fog and friction of war, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But- the Ukrainians, I think a lot of us have been astutely observing, they've been incredibly disciplined, especially with how they use the Western weapon systems, because Western donors have been very clear of like, there are certain red lines and certain terms of escalation that we cannot have when it comes to dealing with Moscow and Putin and our understanding of how we think they perceive deterrence and escalation and things of that nature. So, so yeah, so if and when, you know, the Ukrainians get fourth generation air power. This is a term we use in the Air Force a lot uh, to kind of talk about all the different generations of air power. So think of all the the fourth gen fighters are basically everything before we got to stealth. So your fourth gen fighters, you know, like you said, it's the French Raphaels. uh, It's it's the Typhoons with the Brits. It's the Gripens with the Swedes. And then for the Americans are F-18s, F-15s and Mm F-16s. And in case you ever hear the term about like, oh, that's a 4.5 generation fighter. It means that they've taken like F-15 or F-16 or F-18, and they've upgraded it with a lot of radar um, and software and other sensors that kind of gives it near fifth-gen capabilities just without the stealth. Right. So I think that that's that good for your, you and your audience to kind of know these kind of different terminologies that we operate within. For sure. My guess is if the Ukrainians are going to be getting anything at a minimum, it will be fourth-generation fighters. Um, they probably will not get the 4.5 because that has a lot of sort of extra secret squirrel things on the sensors and things of that nature. But seeing how the Russian Air Force and Russian air defense is working, they don't need that. I mean, more is always better and always nicer, but I don't see the U.S. or any NATO countries being willing to give up that extra sensitive technology and capabilities uh, in case you do lose an F-16 with it. I mean, it's like the the Abrams 
tanks are, are going to be delivered without the depleted uranium yes, exactly. in the armor because that that's just a, a violation of national security rules. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know. Yeah, but I mean, uh, but if we're going to be giving them F-16s, we're going to give them every chance they need to learn how to operate against the Russians. And I'm sure they'll have some pretty good ideas on how to use F-16s against the Russians because they've been doing it for about a year. And oh, by the way, when I talked to a Ukrainian pilot on one of my last trips to Europe, he made it pretty clear they had been training against the Ukrainian, or at least the Ukrainian Air Force had already been training on how to adapt and deal to the Russians it, when next war came after 2014. So they had already adapted all kinds of, of tactics, techniques, and procedures, also known as TTPs, mm-hmm. on how to deal with the Russian Air Force and Russian air defenses. And the fact that they haven't lost more of the Air Force, again, is indicative of their ability to adapt, evolve, overcome, right? You know, look, I mean, F-16s are a long-term investment in Ukraine, even more so than Abrams, right? This is something that's going to require constant, perpetual engagement with the United States in terms of security assistance, arms deals. I mean, you mentioned U.S. contractors coming in, a whole suite of things. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And, and that's the thing, too. I mean, that's going to be the thing, too. I mean, and that's another reason why the Ukrainians know they have to follow every little rule and, and, and be disciplined about any Western equipment they employ in combat because... If they cross a line with any Western capital, they know the logistics, maintenance, and future arms deliveries will no longer happen. Exactly. So, I mean, yes, if the Ukra- you know if the Ukrainians got F-16s and, and used them in, in Russian airspace or, or you know things of that nature, yeah, uh, the con- if there's deployed contractors there, they're going home. Right. You know. So again, this goes into the calculus of war. But you know, honestly, if if I'm the Ukrainians and I get a, a fourth generation a fighter, uh, yeah, I'm using it for combined arms maneuver in the south and the east to sort of break up Russian positions, go after their artillery a little bit. And if they're going after Russian artillery, yeah, you can hang out at 100 to 200 feet, if not lower, because they're already doing that with with their Sukhovs. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the adaptability. You know, there were articles very early on in the war. I think, um, you know, that that guy Nolan Peterson interviewed uh, an American Air Force pilot who said, listen, going from a MiG-29 to an F-16 isn't as difficult a task or a a kind of training module as you might think. It's sort of like knowing one romance language and then learning another one. Yes, they're different airframes, a different technology, different kind of designs, but there's a, a familiarity. Uh, at play here. I mean, what can you tell us in terms of, and there has to be literature on this, because as I said, a lot of countries in Eastern Europe, former Warsaw Pact nations that have joined NATO today in their fleet have both MiG-29s and F-16s. I remember early days when that whole debacle with the Polish MiG-29s, will they, won't they be delivered to Ukraine? One of the issues I heard as a justification for why this was so difficult is Polish pilots prefer MiG-29s to F-16s. It's like mother's milk to them. They This is what they grew up on. This is what they were trained on. Their technicians, their maintenance crew, they're just, they know how to do it a lot better. Can you, is there something, do you have any insights as to kind of, I don't know, historical precedent here? Um, what's in the literature about how long it takes to to train up a I mean, the, the reason why this is an issue is it's usually it's a byproduct of your uh, upper leadership, say, in the Air Force. So to the Polish example, yes, the Polish have actually struggled with adapting the use of F-16s because 
Soviet doctrine just permeated so much within the Polish military, especially in the Polish Air Force. And so, you know, just kind of give a 30,000 foot view of, of what that looks like and why it's, it's a different mentality and why there are concerns about going from a Soviet platform to an American platform. A lot of that is just driven by the fact that the way you train and create pilots under like the Soviet model of controls. So when I say being a pilot who's grown up in like the Soviet doctrinal system, it's more a fact of like it's very controlled, very regimented. You don't really make your own decisions. So to give you an example, and I actually got this from actually a Polish F-16 pilot who had spent a lot of time around Polish MiG-29 pilots. He basically talked about how like Soviet doctrine when it came to using, you know, a MiG-29 or, or any of these aircraft, it's very much the commander tells you, go to your airplane. Then you get to the airplane, you're told what to do and what you're doing that day while you're in the airplane. Then you're being told when you can start your engine. When you take off, you're being told what altitude and heading you're going to. And that whole experience is very much you being under tight control because unfortunately, life is so great in all these civic countries. They're worried about you. <laughs> You defecting with their flying aircraft. off with your aircraft, yeah, which has yeah. happened in the past, by the way, despite all of these strictures in place. So, as much as we as we joke about like, like the Soviet way of fighting, like there's a reason why they were super controlled about that because th this happened all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so when you think about the American way of training and flying, a lot of it is decentralized. As an American pilot, you have control over the mission planning for the most part. You know, you're kind of given sort of, you know, here are your uh, training objectives or like your learning objective outcomes for the day. And then you plan, like you mission plan everything by yourself and, and sometimes with, you know, another pilot or so on, on how you execute these objectives efficiently, takeoff times, you know, here's the training range or this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to attack the position. Right. So. That's why, you know, like the knee jerk arrest from uh, like the knee jerk reaction from most Western pilots is like, oh, you know, they can't do that because they've been under like the Soviet system for a long time. And we and the reason why we know that's just not true is if you have the right leadership, and I think that's been huge for the Ukrainians, if you have the right leadership saying we are making the transition, make it happen. And if you're not on board, then get out of the way is a Finland is a great example of a country that was operating MiGs for decades. And then in the 90s, they're like, we're going to use F-18. And then they just did it, and they did it very well, the transition. And I was actually in Finland back in September. I asked that, and, and one of the F-18 pilots told me who had actually flown on MiGs before, it was just, hey, we are fixing this, we're changing systems, and everything you've learned, you need to unlearn, and now have to learn this. And we all just did it. I think one of the least remarked aspects of um, military absorption of new platforms and systems is the Ukrainians are in a fight for their lives, right? This is an existential struggle. So the incentive to adapt yes. is much greater than if you were just... Yes, right. and that's exactly the thing with, like, with uh, Finland, was we're changing and adapting because we still view... Russia, even in the 1990s, and everyone was calling them like a bunch of roof, a bunch of russophobes. And they're like, look, see, we were still right. Was we still see Moscow as an existential threat. So we're changing platforms and we're not looking back and we're going to be going this way. And now you probably heard this past year, Finland's getting F-35s. Right. Like, so it's the same thing with Ukrainians. People don't realize how much existential threats usually change the way you think about problem sets and issues. <laughs> and if it doesn't, it means you have bad leadership. I know that there's a, to kind of, kind of contradict the bullishness on the Ukrainian side about how they will win the war and they're going to get everything they want. There's a great deal of frustration in that they still feel that no matter how many times they upend expectation, 
They can't use HIMARS. Sure, they can. Kyiv is going to fall in three days. No, it didn't. They can't do a counteroffensive. Kharkiv and Kherson happened. Um, you know, oh, the, the winter now, it's, it's, it's frozen and the Russians are gaining in Bakhmut and Solodar, etc. They still think that people continue to underestimate them. And, you know, look, I have to be honest, it's hard to sometimes take at face value people under occupation who are having this existential struggle to survive when they're begging you for help of course they're going to say just give us every everything you have and and we'll take care of it but there is something to be said for their ability to learn quickly and put to great effect yeah. uh, all of these things that we're providing them in fact you know one of the things i've been hearing now in terms of the erasure or the dimming of certain red lines is look they're not worried so much about putin launching nukes if for instance the ukrainians march on crimea or start pounding occupied mariupol or retaking even more territory the issue is supply chain inventory and then our own domestic security capability right dwindling stocks of things like javelins and so on and even attackums you know, the mythic wonder waffa that they haven't got. I heard, look, it's not even about escalation anymore. It's about yeah. these missiles cost, what, $900,000 a pop around that mark. And when we first gave them Gimlers, what they ended up doing, and this is totally logical and understandable, is they were firing them in anything that moved, right? There was no economy of usage because they had to adapt to the fact that they now needed to be more discriminating with their artillery. Just do that, you know, coming back to the Soviet doctrine of just pound the shit out of everything with everything that you have at your disposal. No, the Western way of war is slightly different. But again, they've adapted. And it's now been, what, August or July, they got the first MLRSs. It's been six months plus. The US has been sufficiently impressed by their growing economy of usage and their effectiveness. So again, it's a balancing act, right? And it's a testing, a proof of concept, right? Let's see what they can do with a little yeah. bit of something. And then once they show that they've done more than we anticipated, we give them more. And then we give them the next thing. And it's the same game around and around and around. Do we have any idea... It's hard enough to get a handle on the earthbound military component that has gone into this thing from the Ukrainian side. Do we have any ideas how many Ukrainian pilots there are in the Ukrainian Air Force? I mean, I remember talking to somebody uh, early on who said to me, oh, well, you know, we shouldn't just send the MiGs from Poland or Slovakia or, you know, Bulgaria or wherever. I said, why not? I mean, if they need more, well, they don't have enough pilots to fly them. And I said, well, how do you know that? Have you gone to Ukraine and done like a headcount of pilots that they've got and now have, you know, post-war or, or after February 24th? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's it, you know, I feel like a lot of these kind of on paper assessments have turned out to be flawed to say the least. Do we know how many are? No, I mean, I mean, open source, no, we don't. But the impression I've gotten from, you know, people, you know, I, I have some colleagues that were just in Ukraine this past week. The impression still seems to be they have at least over a hundred and they could get more just by making more phone calls. And that's what I think too, I think uh, might also change these dynamics as well as if we end up having to go down the road of like a foreign legion of uh, fighter pilots. You know, well, I mean, where... Okay, so to throw it back at you as to why that might be problematic, let's say you have Canadians, Frenchmen, Americans, Spaniards, all volunteering to fly F-16s on behalf of Ukraine. They get shot down, they get taken hostage by the Russians. It changes things a little bit. Or does that not matter given that you've already got a foreign legion on the ground, some of whom are getting killed? Yeah, I think it's that. And uh, oddly enough, in class today, uh, I was, we were actually, uh, we went down a rabbit hole discussion about this actual, that's actual very issue. Uh, in 1948, the Israeli Air Force was comprised mainly of Western defectors from the US, Canada, and other, the Western militaries that had defected 
to Israel to help Israel in the war in 1948. So I think if, if, if you view this as an existential threat to Ukraine, which it is to its existence, just like people did with Israel in 1948, I think it creates a sense of urgency like it did with the creation of all these foreign legions in Ukraine yeah. over the last year. If that is a p- potential path that, that Ukraine chooses to explore, that is definitely a viable option. Obviously, you know, from a U.S. and, and NATO perspective, they, you know, U.S. and NATO might say things to the effect of like, we do not endorse <laughs> such ways of fighting, but we have no way of telling you no either. Yeah, I mean, you can't stop volunteers from going over and doing whatever they can do exactly when yeah. they're there. If you had to guess, would you say that the prospect of their getting F-16s, maybe not in the immediate future, but in the mid to long term future is pretty good as of today? Yeah, I mean, again, as much as I can not comment on U.S. official policy, I mean, the needle appears to be moving in that direction based off of past policy decisions of the administration saying no. And then the NATO alliance and lockstep starts moving in that direction. I mean, that that just seems to be the trend right now, right? Is that the U.S. says no to Abrams tanks or artillery or high Mars or to, to fighter jets for the Ukrainians. And then you already see the Dutch a couple weeks ago saying, hey, they can have our F-16s. Now Poland saying, hey, you can have our F-16s. Hey, uh, I think the French already uh, think announced yesterday uh, that they're open to the idea of training Ukrainian pilots in their country. So when you start to get that slow momentum of consensus, it does eventually get not the U.S. Let's just say it gets NATO to yes on a certain platform or capability for the Ukrainians. So I, I think you could really insert weapon system X. Everyone says no. And then there's that sort of snowballing of who's going to say they'll pledge or allow this. And then it, it eventually gets to yes once there's a consensus within NATO. You realize I just asked you that question so I could play this, right? <laughs> I can't tell you the number of Ukrainians that have sent me that song in the last like two weeks. But remember, They're Top like, Gun, they're flying F 18 I know, I know, uh, but uh, it doesn't uh, matter. Mostly... It doesn't. You pick. Okay, all right, there, <laughs> Flyboy. You come up with another a better song to to <laughs> sell American air. It might actually have to be the, the Iron Eagle movie, but I don't think anyone knows Iron the Eagle. Iron Eagle. Wow, that's about an 80s nostalgia trip. Yeah, that's those are F 16s but of course the Air Force, unlike the Navy, the Air Force thought the script for Iron Eagle was ridiculous and preposterous. So getting back to Israel, actually, a lot of the the stock footage of F 16s and Iron Eagle is actually from the Israeli Air Force. Believe it or not, that's funny. I remember when they were still kind of figuring out what they need and what they can use. We had this conversation too because I spoke to um, a high-ranking official in the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense who said, you know, actually we think maybe something more quote-unquote rugged would suit our needs better given the state of disrepair of our our airfields and runways, right? So like F-15s, what's the thing about them? They're, it's, they're too piloted or uh, there's two, two seater. Well, they have a pilot and they have a WIZO. So the WIZO is the weapon systems officer, although I think we're calling them CISOs now. So CISO, CSO, it's a combat systems operator. So if you can tell, I'm trying to do my best here to not use acronyms or at least. Right. And the other thing is, no, no, by all means, use. Ac- by the way, my favorite acronym with respect to any kind of, you know, air combat is SEED is one thing, suppression of enemy air defense systems, but DEAD is my favorite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Destruction of enemy air defense. Sometimes this alphabet soup can actually, you know, like attack is just the perfect name for that 
that missile, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why when people say no, they call them atticums. I'm like, no, 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 attackums. <laughs> attackums, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the other thing is, what is it? Two engines? Because I remember hearing that. Oh, if you you know, if an F-15 gets shot and one of its engines goes out, it can land with the other engine. So they're they're more. Yeah, yeah. For I, I don't know. I mean, the Ukrainians were were judging it based on the fact that there is a good likelihood that they can get shot down, or they're they're going to. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. but I mean, yeah, but if you're getting. If you're getting hit with like a, a heat sinking missile, there's a good chance that it may also take out your other engine anyways as well. Or, But again, most of the Russian air defenses are all working off of radar. So now it's just it takes out your wing. It doesn't really matter if you have an engine or two engines because you've just lost it. You can't fly that thing anyways. So when it comes to like to like the ruggedness and durability of, ha- of having an engine versus two engines, I think what we kind of have to get back to with a square one, which is, yeah, the Ukrainians just don't have the airfields and air bases and good operating surfaces, which is actually kind of problematic for doing dispersed operations, which is what the Ukrainians have been doing for most of the war. That's why they still have an air force is because they dispersed and used highways and roads to launch Sukhovs and MiGs because they are designed to take, you know, they can handle take takeoffs and landings on rough roads that have not been swept 15 times by a street cleaner. And that's, and this is takes us to the really difficult discussion, which is if you talk to any Air Force pilot in any military that uses F 15s, F 16s, F 18s, F 22s, F 25s, having a well maintained airport is super important for the operation of these things because even a little rock on the runway or taxiway can get sucked into one of the engines and basically destroy the engine or make you not able to fly that day or now they have to do an engine swap or do you know a million dollars worth of maintenance and that's why you know we're always oscillating between do we give them to them but they can only operate for a week or two because all the engines are going to basically get messed up as they take off and land on austere airfields of that nature you know and that's that's why people go well can we get a grippins from the Swedes and well, how many grippins can the Swedes actually spare? You know, so then that becomes also its own, its own big problem set. Right. And I mean, this is, this gets back to sort of an earlier question I at least alluded to, which is they wouldn't just get the planes. This would be in conjunction with a host of other ancillary material methods and equipment to maintain these airfields. They'd have to get bolstered air defense systems, right, to protect the airfields because yep. the easiest thing to do, just take out the runways, right, that yep. the Russians could log cruise missiles. Uh, and then here's the another question. I mean, there's so much intelligence the United States in particular is gleaning from this war, just in terms of how the Russians fight, how they are not able to fight given certain circumstances. Clearly, the U.S. is sharing a lot of information and material with the Ukrainians, more than we'll know for years to come. If we were to provide them with a fleet of F-16s or any other Western aircraft, presumably in order to indemnify our own investment here and to make sure that these things don't get blown up within the space of a week or two. We would also provide them with radar. We would provide them with actionable intel as to Russia's own air capability, things like that. In a way, we're probably not doing as of now, given that they're still flying their dinosaur era MiGs and Sukhois, right? I mean, so this is is actually a much larger investment in Ukraine than just here's a bunch of... Yeah, and, and, that's, and that takes us back to 
one of two logics and problem sets. The first option is, again, is this not looking like it's an American war or a NATO war against Russia. Right. And then the logic of, again, escalation that comes from that. Yeah. But then that takes us down to we also don't want these things being paperweights in a week or two either. Right. Right. So we don't want the paperweights, you know, we don't want these things are basically not working in a week or two. Now we have to send the package, if you will, <laughs> like you said, the radar, the air defense, the the ground support personnel, the supply chain, logistics, maintenance, basically a, I think if you had to figure out air, an airfield or air, air base operations, you're going to need at least 80 to 100 people to keep that air base operating as well as you could, just to have the airport working just for the airplanes. That doesn't mention the hundreds of other people it would take for who's going to load the bombs, who's going to, you know, fix the, who's going to make sure we got the fuel. You you know, you're going to have to start thinking about all these little things that start turning into building an airport or air base in the middle of Afghanistan, which the U.S. military does have experience doing that. (laughs) But it's also not having to worry about a, a nuclear armed power that may decide to bomb you Anytime you you try to like fix the airport so an F-16 can take off or whatever, a fourth generation fighter. And that's what that's what makes this really tough. Right. And I, I've always assumed, and t- it may well be the case that this has happened already, the, the, the Polish press has reported that last spring Poland sent MiG-29s to Ukraine stealthily under the guise of spare parts. So whether they disassembled the planes in Poland and then had them reassembled in Ukraine, I don't know. But that always seemed to me like a logical next step, right? If if they're running out of aircraft or they need more aircraft or they just need the spare parts to maintain aircraft that have been damaged or worn out, give them the stuff that they currently fly, right? Yeah, I mean, and it sounds like there's still a couple of countries left that haven't given the Ukrainians all of their old MiG and Sukhoff equipment and, you know, parts, if you will, right? So, but again, we also have to be realistic that what will the Ukrainian Air Force be in two to three years? Right. Because at a certain point, they're going to exhaust every MiG and Sukhoff component in the world. Right. And if there is no more Ukrainian air power in two to three years, that's also highly problematic as well. And it's also, we're reaching this sort of critical juncture where on the ground, a kind of NATO standardized military has come into formation and in the air, Soviet era relics, right? So there's got there's a disconnect here. I mean, can, presumably the Ukrainians can MacGyver their way into some form of combined arms warfare with Western armor and artillery on the ground, their own native infantry, obviously, and in the skies above MiGs and Sukhois. But, you know, they would much prefer, obviously, to have everything integrated in a Western. Yeah, no, and I mean... Whoever decides to give the Ukrainians a, a fourth generation fighter, it may have to be framed in the um, in the logic of wording of like, oh, we're giving, you know, just like we gave the Ukrainians Patriot batteries to protect their major cities, we're giving them fourth generation fighters to protect their major cities. Right. It's a form of air defense. More. Yeah. Than- I mean, so if I mean, I could see a country, you know, that maybe leans more, you know, more neutralist in NATO saying we're going to give them, you know, this aircraft. And they can only use it to operate out of Lviv or Kiev or a Dnipro or something like that. And you only use it to shoot down incoming Russian caliber missiles or something like that. You know, like I could see a country kind of, you know, cracking open the door, a fourth gen fighter for the Ukrainians under that sort of this is a defensive, you know, aircraft only. Well, and, you know, the reason they're getting patriots, I mean, just very cynically so, is nothing to do with they need them for their own people and everything to do with 
you've got hundreds, if not thousands of Western personnel, diplomats, support staff in embassies in Kyiv who are under constant bombardment. They're hiding out in bunkers, the same as every Ukrainian. And the West needs to protect its own people with Western materiel, right? So at some point you might say, okay, if there are enough Westerners in Ukraine as well, there's going to be an incentive or an impetus to provide Western airframes to keep the skies clear of incoming. Yeah, look, I tend to agree. I think we will get there on some model, probably the F-16, but the wheels turn very slowly. I totally get why it's going that way, because there's just so many F-16s in the world. You know? Like, again, Iraq has F-16s. <laughs> Egypt has F-16s. Pakistan has F-16s. It'll be very interesting to watch this space, because, again, in the spa- in only 11 months uh, and change, you've seen thing miracles have been performed in terms of security assistance, things that they were told they'd never get in a million years, they now operate uh, and, and are, are on the way. Yeah, no, and I, I even wrote an article a couple months ago talking about, you know, one such pathway, if the Ukrainians and, you know, certain neighboring countries agree to it, they could actually start having sister joint squadrons where Ukrainians are part of like a Polish F-16 unit or a Romanian F-16 unit. You know, geographically close, they have good ties, good relationships, shared culture and, and some shared language where, you know, th- that could be the the beginnings of the transition. They keep saying like, oh, Ukrainians don't know how this stuff works. Well, oh, oh look, we have Ukrainians a part of this F-16 unit at Poznan Air Base in Poland. Yeah, well, I mean, coming back to your earlier point about the Israeli model, you had, you know, Americans, Canadians and, you know, Europeans flying Israeli aircraft and presumably then sticking around, becoming citizens and training up a new generation of fighter pilots, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, man. Well, a pleasure as always. Um, The best episodes of the show are ones where I just talk to my friends and hit record. So that's kind of how I consider this. My The language wasn't as salty as it usually gets. <laughs> and there, I usually drop a few F-bombs here and there. I'm there surprised weren't, I made there it. weren't <laughs> as many memes as well, but um, make of that what you will. Um, anyway, Frankie, it was great to have you on. And look, like I said, it's, it's F-16 month, if not F-16 year uh, in terms of the next big Ukrainian ask and anticipated uh, receipt. So we shall definitely have you back to discuss this as the debate continues. Yeah, I'd be happy to to celebrate whatever fourth generation fighter the Ukrainians get, either if the process starts next month or six months, but it needs to start sooner than later because it takes time to train people to fly airplanes in general. Yeah. I, I, I know we didn't get too much of the weeds on that, but you know, it takes a few months to learn a new airplane. It takes a few months to learn how to fly with another airplane in formation. It takes a few more months to learn how to use your, your weapon systems and sensors in a way that keeps you alive and, and kills the bad guys out there. You know, so, you know, this is not a just plug and chug in a few weeks, you know, we'll be plucky and figure it out. Like these are complicated systems and they cost a lot. So, okay, well, watch this space, I guess. You've been uh, listening to Foreign Office. Uh, I'm Michael Weiss. My guest this week is Jahara Frankie Matasek. He's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force, as well as a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. Nothing he said reflects the opinion or viewpoint of the U.S. government or Department of Defense, only his own. Uh, so I just want to remind listeners, don't don't hold him to account or don't hold the U.S. government to account for any nonsense he might have been pronouncing, as a certain Russian diplomat would have it. Anyway, we will see you next week. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.